0: what's going on? Why are we selling so many small deals? And I was like, if we don't want people to do this, we probably shouldn't have a $99 a month product. So one day I walked in and I was like, minimum price is $1,500 a month, over 10 times higher. He's like, oh man, you know, that's going to be hard. But the interesting thing is it wasn't. Now everyone's selling something that's 10 times more valuable. And we just literally took off.
1: I'm Peplow. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is to the winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Todd Olson, CEO of Pendo, a platform that helps companies accelerate their digital adoption by making their software products more intuitive. In this interview, Todd shares the journey of pioneering a new product category, the strategic moves behind their rapid growth, and the importance of focusing on the product persona. Discover how Pendo navigated the challenges of category creation, scaled from zero to over $100 in revenue, and the role of strategic decisions versus luck in their success. Let's get into it.
0: There was not a product category when we started. And interestingly, when we're raising our seed funds, you would get a lot of VC slash investors saying, hey, MarTech is the largest variable budget. You should be targeting MarTech. And and my answer back was, well, it seems really crowded. There's a lot of MarTech solutions. I don't, be want, I don't want to be one of 50 things that some company could buy. And no one's really serving this product persona. And we think there's an opportunity to do so. And I come from a product background, so I felt like I had a better connection with what product teams wanted and needed. So we started there and honestly have always been there. It's interesting because some of our competitors started in the marketing space And then years later, shifted to become product focused. Because the question you get is how much budget does product have? And you get a lot of people who were former product managers that are now investors that say, hey, when I was a product manager, I had no budget. And my response back was, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem. If you have nothing to buy, you would never go and ask for budget. So it's not like people like randomly create lines on budget items to buy things that don't exist. You have budget line items. Because you need to buy something. Until Pendo and a suite of other solutions really existed, there wasn't things to buy. So of course there wasn't a budget line item. So to me, it was one of the most nonsensical objections to Pendo at the time. Honestly, I still get it. Does that mean that our teams have to work with our customers to create budget line items and help educate our buyers on how to buy software? Yes, we do. And that's actually one of the fundamental hardest things we do is that we sell to someone who is not accustomed to buying things. So you have to teach them how to buy things. You have to say, look, there's like this procurement thing, there's security and InfoSec. And, and actually the cool thing is, fast forward to today, more people know today how to buy things and product than ever before. And so it just keeps getting better every year. I always tell my team, sometime the future is gonna be easy. And it's gonna be the result of all this hard work. So on your
1: path from zero to first million in revenue, what worked, how did you acquire first customers? How did you make them come up with the budget?
0: I think the early days were wild. And you could argue we always had product led motion. It was get on the phone with someone, connect with them on the pain that we solve. Given they come from a product background, I knew the pains that they were encountering. I was very easily able to connect. And then I was able to teach a few sales reps on how to connect as well. Then like, hey, try it. That was the motion. It was try it. And generally speaking, when people tried it, they bought. And in the early days, our marketing motions, obviously we did some of the traditional stuff. But early days, we focused, as we do today, but in a more limited fashion and and kind of grassroots. So we used to go to these weekend events called product camps. We would show up on a Friday in the morning on a Saturday morning with a tablecloth and a piece of paper. So we had no like <laughs> electronic and show people the product, just take names and email addresses. That's what we do all day long. And then because they're unconferences, we could pitch to speak. So I'd always pitch to speak or someone there would pitch to speak when it would you know generate some leads and then we would work them and, and that was enough to get off the ground. But that was probably one of the big pieces. I guess the other big pieces, we leveraged the venture community heavily while we're chatting with venture capitalists, we would always have an ask, hey, do you mind introducing us to three or four of your portfolio companies? Oh, by the way, I like these three. I would love to meet with them. And look, if I ask for three or four, maybe I get one or two. And we get on the phone with a chief product officer and we walk them through it and we would win a decent number of those deals. And that was pretty cool because as we're looking for future funds, the investors just use their portfolio companies as references. So it was like a nice little loop that we had going from that zero to a million phase.
1: How long did it take you to hit the first million?
0: From the time we started selling, like roughly a year.
1: And then going from one to 10, how long did that take?
0: Less than two years.
1: So then by the time you hit one million, you had some momentum, you had some product market fit. So what did you do to have that fast growth?
0: Obviously, we scaled a lot. We hired uh, a reasonable number of reps. And we started working on playbooks to get them successful. One of the earliest things we, we did to drive growth, I'll never forget it, is experiment with pricing. We started the company, we had a $99 a month price point, And we're sitting in a co-working space. And I'm like, we want to get all these startups to use us. And $99 seems like a pretty good price. When I was selling personally, I would never really sell to the really tiny startups that did $99 a month. Our first deals were five, six times larger than that. And so that's how we got a kind of original product market fit. Then fast forward, we hired sales reps. All of a sudden you started seeing this influx of $99 a month deals. Our CTO and my CTO co-founder is like, Todd, what's going on? Why are we selling so many small deals? And I was like, we just have people and we let them sell it. It, There is no magic to it. If we don't want people to do this, we probably shouldn't have a $99 a month product. So one day I walked in and I was like, minimum price is $1,500 a month. Went from $99 to $1,500 a month. Over 10 times higher and my head of the sale at the time. Like you can see him like swallowing heavy. He's like, oh man, you know, like, like that's going to be hard. But the interesting thing is it wasn't of course volume shrunk just a little bit, but now everyone's selling something that's 10 times more valuable. And, every, and we just literally took off when I'm a big student of that, you can see like the elasticity curve, demand didn't really slow down to much above that $1,500 a month point at that you know, period in our history. And that really helped fuel a lot of growth.
1: Does that mean that during that one to 10 phase, you became more outbound focused over inbound leads?
0: (laughs) We haven't really become outbound focused till now. I think we have had a healthy inbound culture for a very long time. And certainly in those days, we were almost 100% inbound. We would do things like events and shows. There's one year back there, around the $10 million phase that I swear we did like
1: 60 events in a year. And was that then coupled with content marketing, SEO?
0: Obviously the SEO stuff. But then, yeah, content was a big piece of it as well. One of our big bets, we started our own content brand called Product Craft. And Product Craft was a separate brand. We basically took one of our content people and said, you are now the editor-in-chief of Product Craft. And her job was, in addition to running our own content, was to go out and find content from our customers, from the community. Now is one of the cool things because we can go to a customer and we would say, hey, a great way to do professional development is to share best practices with your community. So please write us an article, we will publish it, we will get reach for it. And we started really building up this independent content brand. Yeah, you'd see the Pendo logo
2: really small,
0: but it wasn't really around driving brand for Pendo and more just building a larger community. And my thesis from day one, was that the more great product managers we have, the greater the demand and opportunity for Pendo.
1: Rod mentions building a content brand that was useful to their potential customers. By doing so, they would eventually grow a community that would not only create leads for their product, it would create needs for their product. Listen to my episode with Adam Robinson of retention.com where he talks about his content creation strategy.
0: I thought I was facing an awareness battle more than anything else, but I started Creating content to help this effort. I think it just helps everything. It speeds everything up a little bit. It's an automated trust building machine. Sometimes it takes a couple touches. Sometimes it takes one touch. But yeah, that is the motion that ended up working for us in that world.
1: So, this becoming a media company has been all the rage in the last couple of years in B2B SaaS, and you guys were. Ahead of everybody else, starting with Product Craft, which is now a defunct brand, it seems. you merged it into other stuff.
0: One of my favorite business books is uh, the Jim Collins books. And they talk about firing bullets for firing cannonballs. And Product Craft was a bullet. It was a test. Uh, and it was a successful test. We actually loved it. But then come fast forward to roughly 2021, our head of marketing at the time said, hey, look, Product craft's great, it's growing, blah, blah, blah. But there's mind the product. And it's just a lot bigger than product craft. And he made a pretty cogent argument for acquiring mind the product. So think about a software company buying a community. You're buying a content brand. You're also buying conferences. You buy a conference, especially in 2021, like right post COVID. It was like, hey, this is working, but we want to double down on it. And so we made that acquisition. And now... We merged Product Craft in the mind, the products, and then the mind, the product brand is our go-forward community. And honestly, it's awesome. It's an awesome community. I'm really proud to. I guess we're the stewards of this community going forward. The changes we made, we actually have opened up all the paywalls on content. Because interestingly, the paywalls on content, they put them in to survive during COVID. Now it was post-COVID, and now they're part of a software company. It wasn't an important like piece of revenue for us to continue to maintain, but actually, rather open it up so more people can enjoy it and take advantage of it.
1: Every company is becoming a media company, they say. HubSpot bought the hustle. Salesforce announced Salesforce Plus. ProfitWell became famous for producing content in various forms. The idea here is that invest in brand or pay more in CAC forever and ever. And you don't need to be a massive company to do this. Gary Vee has been on this soapbox for over 10 years.
2: Look. There's a difference
1: between BuzzFeed and Seth Godin's blog, right? There's a lot more content every day, there's a lot more stuff, but Seth puts out his best effort once a day. For me, I did a wine show. I mean, it's what I'm doing right now. I mean, in theory, I could staff up even more than DRock and Stunwin and, and put out Q&A shows all day long, Have go the Oprah model and have people underneath me. There's a lot of ways to go. But if you believe in what I believe in, which is every business is becoming a media company, all of a sudden, you're taking hours away from staffing, strategizing, selling, all the other things you're doing. And you're putting one, two, three hours into becoming a media company. And I do believe that has enormous upside.
0: And now it's interesting. You go fast forward to today, and our size and scale, and we're well larger than 100 million in revenue. The, the buyer's different. Our buyers who we're selling to are more traditional businesses. They're the the Home Depots of the world and the banks of the world, which is very different than when we were in this 10 range that you and I were just talking about. So that means we're seeing a different audience, folks that are more the early to late majority. And there, product management's really quite new. So this content and this education system that we have is so important to take, I don't know, a business analyst at a Home Depot and help retrain them on how to be a product manager. Because all these large established companies are not going to go out and hire like 50 product managers. They're not going to go compete with like Amazon and Google and try. it's just not going to work. What they have to do is they take their amazing employees that are very loyal, that know the company, know the systems are subject matter experts on these businesses. And, you, and they're taking them and helping elevate them and teach them a new skill, a new technique, which is great. And we're actually part of that change. And it's actually fun. It's fun and it's interesting. But it's all, it's all part of how the strategy works together.
1: So was that a, oh, look at all these leads. They are now different. Or was it like, hey, we should go upmarket. We should go after the bigger company. How, how did that evolution happen?
0: We, we very consciously focused on a role. And by focusing on a role, that does mean you're completely horizontal. You can be a product manager at a bank, at a software company, anywhere. B2C, B2B, there are PMs in a lot of places. And invariably, we would meet these folks and... Interestingly, people would move jobs, not shockingly, a bank would hire someone that used Pendo as a, as a startup. Actually, a great story was we worked with University of Phoenix. That's a, yeah, it's a college, <laughs> right? But the only reason we worked with them is because this hardcore user at this tiny little startup, he was using us for years. I think the startup either went under or they had a change of direction. He got a job at the University of Phoenix, and the first thing he did was call us and said, hey, I need you. So that's how it happened. It happened because people love the product. They got used to using it and they didn't want to go to a job and not have access to that same level of power. But of course, as you can imagine, that changes a lot of things when you start selling to larger businesses. The procurement cycles are longer. The security uh, requirements are higher. We we have a a really large customer that has over a thousand people using Pendo. Now, if you have a 50-person startup, they don't even have a thousand people to even use, like let let alone that many use pendos. That changes how many items and subscriptions, it it changes the product requirements in general. So that's how it happened. So the ICP was still pretty close, but just had a natural evolution.
1: So when you were around the 10 million revenue mark, you were still primarily a product onboarding tool, uh, like a point solution. And over time, you've become many other things. There's the session replays and analytics and this and that. So tell me a little bit about going from a point solution to a platform and making those product decisions, what to build next. Was it all about what else can we sell to existing customers and increase our ACV? Was it to tap into a new market? What was the product strategy there?
0: I will say from day one, we tried to be a platform. I'm talking about pre-revenue. We shipped a version of product analytics in early 2014. And then to many people's surprise, we built our onboarding in-product a messaging right after, in 2014. Before we had anyone really even using product analytics, we built a second thing. My vision day one was that the winner in this market is going to have a platform. It's gonna have an integrated platform and that these two things work really well together. We were the first company to put these two things together. Now, we sold it as a single bundle, so people didn't think of it as two separate things. And I think that was the area where only until very recently, people now really think it was a platform. It's because we've added so many more things that people now really see the vision much more so than they did in that that $10 million range. And a couple of things guided that. One, yes, we are listening to our customers and we're saying, what other solutions and or problems do our core buyers slash ICP have? The first big thing we added into that was qualitative feedback. So we had quantitative product analytics, clicks, funnels, you name it. But the internet messaging product had the ability to start surveying people, get lightweight qual. Once you start giving people a little taste of the qual people wanted, that promoter score and things like that. So we built out pretty sophisticated products around that. And that was part of our ultimate strategy. And one of the things that I know when I was talking to my head of product then, and still a core philosophy for me in how we build product is this concept of innovate at the intersections. So what that means is when all else fails, when we're prioritizing things, if there are features that reside in the intersections, things that you can only do because you have these two things in one package, mm-hmm. that's where we build. So yeah. one of the classic ones is I was at literally a lunch with a designer and we're building our NPS product. And I said, wouldn't it be cool to have NPS data and product usage in the same graph? You can actually create basically a scatter plot of the two items. And that what that means is, look, if someone's a high usage detractor, that means they're in your product all day long, every day and hate it. Either they're like masochists, or there's some learning there, right? Versus someone who never really used your product and does it. So I created this basically two by two quadrant based on this combination. And it was an example of something that no one else in the world could do because they, they didn't have these two things in the same package. And that was the first time that we started really focusing on innovation there. We always liked the market that focuses on managing feature requests because you know what? It's a painful activity that every product manager has. They always say, once you ship something, people are going to give you feedback. If you don't have a centralized system for it, it just becomes a mess. We spent a lot of time in that market. We looked at building it. We looked at buying it. We ended up buying a company in the UK, 2019, and then integrated that into our platform. And what that allowed us to do is now, if I'm looking at, I don't know, say a customer in Pendo, I can see all the users that use the product. I can see what features they're using, but they also see what they're asking for uh, and, and whether we're actually building it. So that gives me like a pretty interesting and or nuanced vision of health. Oh, and then of course the MPS, I can also see what they're saying about us or thinking or feeling about us. You know, So that, like that's pretty cool. That gives you what I call like a 360 degree view of this customer. So that was another area of innovation. I love Jeffrey Moore. He has this model called Bowling Pins. Every year, we would get together with the exact team and look at these bowling pins. And we've been talking about from a three to five years sp- perspective, what are the things we can do to double our revenue? And we had this conversation every year. And we would write down ideas as a team and we prioritize them. We'd have a backlog of what we call bets that would double the revenue of the business.
1: Rod Olson is talking about Jeffrey Moore's organizational bowling pin strategy. When a company focuses on one target niche at a time, before knocking over adjacent pens. By securing a strong foothold in a targeted niche, a company can then leverage its success and reputation to expand into related markets, creating a domino effect that eventually leads to broader market acceptance. Here's Jeffrey Moore discussing this strategy.
2: We sometimes call it the junior high dance problem. How do you get the people out of the dance floor the first time? Turns out in the bowling alley, these are people you're gonna target, So you're looking for people who need what you have. And specifically the niche market, typically it's in a single vertical. And so this is when the solution model works the best. It's focused on a very specific use case in a very specific industry. And that's what we call the head bowling pin. You wanna win one use case in one vertical market to the point where you are the go-to solution for that use case in that market. And then you can expand into adjacent segments which would be called uh, more bowling pins, where you either have the the same customer with a slightly different use case or the same use case with a slightly different customer, but you're, you're kind of working off of that first success and pragmatists like to see that success, success, success. Now, at some point, when you have enough bowling niche market examples, the world goes, well, hang on, this isn't just for niche markets, this is for anybody, this is like, the cloud computing isn't just for you know facebook and media companies
0: everybody can use cloud computing we saw a growing need that people didn't just build software for their customers they're building software for their employees and they're buying software for the employees so we call this pendo for employees market and it was a different icp in that these are internal pms they're focused on serving like internal business users they're often part of it we had never sold to it before so we built a whole new product category called Pendo for Employees. Took our product and created almost a different flavor or lens on it, is the way to think of it. And that is still in progress. Your growth rate
1: has been 100% year over year. What else do you think has contributed to that pretty impressive growth, especially considering that you have succeeded where a lot of your competitors did not? So what did you do differently?
0: This may sound really like a trite answer, but we go for it. We're going to try to grow that fast because in order to actually grow that fast, you have to hire the level of capacity. You have to push very hard. Like you have to do uncomfortable things. The first several years of our business, we tripled and tripling is unnatural. Trust me, it's unnatural. You have to do unnatural things. And, And if we came up a little bit short, we would get pissed off and we would do retrospectives. Where do we slow down? What market? What bet? did not yield what we responded. So I think it's really having an obsession of how do you find growth that is really key, which I know like sounds really easy, but it's not easy because you have to deal with the fact that when you set really high goals, sometimes you're gonna come up short. And then now you gotta manage through cultural shifts where like missing plan, but when your plan's bigger than everyone else's, (laughs) I think that's why one of the biggest challenges that we have as a business. We consistently have to manage through this and, and it's because we push pretty hard. I think it comes down to hiring. It comes down to obsessing over a lot of leading indicators in your business around things like pipeline. I, I already talked a little bit about pricing and how we think a lot about pricing. Like one of the things we noticed was because we had this package and we threw everything together in one bundle, people didn't always give us credit for the fact that we had two products in one. And if they're comparing us to a competitor that only has one product, and they're just asking us for discounts because they don't value the other piece of it so i was like oh, this is madness we started unbundling when there's i forget who it was there's when I think it was Jim Barksdale, the CEO of Netscape. So there's only, there's only two truths in pricing, bundling and unbundling. So we had done both many times. We started unbundling. Now we're actually fully unbundling. It. Right now, it's one of the changes we're making this year just to make sure people understand the value that each of the pieces of the bundle actually delivers.
1: Todd is referencing the almost mythologized but true quote from Jim Barksdale when he was the CEO of Netscape. He was speaking to a room full of investors worried about Microsoft deployment of their own web browser. Barksdale said, there are only two ways I know of to make money, bundling and unbundling. This encapsulates a fundamental strategy in the tech industry. Companies can create value and generate revenue by either combining several products or services into a single comprehensive package or by offering them separately in a more a la carte manner. This approach reflects the cyclical nature of market demands and consumer preferences.
0: The other thing I, I should also say is we also enjoyed a lot of organic growth because we sell based on our customers' numbers of users and software just took off. When you sell a monthly active users and more and more monthly active users use software, we've had net retention well north of 130. We did it at times at over 145%. That's nice growth, but you can grow via net retention. So your customers are growing, therefore you're growing. Look, there's no magic in it. It's never easy. So I hopefully no one who's listening to this thinks it sounds easy coming. from. It's not trust me. It's a fight every single quarter. But yeah, I mean, product works and gets a big part of it. At the end of the day, when you have a good product. It does make things a whole heck of a lot easier. And so we measure things like net promoter score. You can see when a net promoter score down it dips, it affects our retention, it affects our growth. So we obsess over what people are saying. Why are you not loving this product? Let's fix that. And if you fix that leading indicator, your business the rest will follow i'm a big believer in focusing on fundamentals and if you get that right growth will come
1: how did pendo win one they created a new product category
0: there was not a product category when we started i don't be want, i don't want to be one of you know 50 things that some company could buy and no one's really serving this product persona and we think there's an opportunity to do so
1: two they made strategic pricing adjustments
0: so one day i walked in and i was like minimum price is $1500 a month went from 99 to $1,500 a month, over 10 times higher. Yeah, of course, volume shrunk just a little bit, but now everyone's selling something that's 10 times more valuable. And, every, and we just literally took off.
1: Three, they focused on product-led growth.
0: We always had product-led motion. It was get on the phone with someone, connect with them on the pain that we solve, given they come from a product background, I knew the pains that they were encountering. So I was very easily able to connect. And then I was able to teach a few sales reps on how to connect as well. Then like, hey, try it. Like That was the motion. It was try it. And generally speaking, when people tried it, they bought.
1: And that's how you win. I'm
2: Pep Weil. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.